Welcome to Pioneering Today with me, Melissa K. Norris, where I inspire your faith and your pioneer roots. I show you how to grow your own food, heirloom gardening, how to preserve your food at home, and modern homesteading. Tune in every other Friday as I share proven strategies that anyone can do to live the pioneer lifestyle. Make sure to head over to melissaknorris.com and subscribe to receive free Pioneering Today articles and updates. I am so excited to have you guys join me today on the Pioneering Today podcast. And so we are going to be continuing the discussion on tips that we can use today from the Great Depression era. Um, Last week's episode was episode number 39, and that was building a Great Depression era pantry with frugal tips and recipes. And oh my goodness, you guys, that has been within one day, 24 hours, my most listened to podcast ever. So I really wanted to delve deeper into this and take it further, um, give you more info because so many of you emailed me and you were really excited about it and you wanted more. And some of you shared some of your tips um, that your grandparents had passed on to you. So I wanted to share those in today's show and take that a little bit further. Um, and so it was really um, awesome, actually. I, in doing the um, the first episode of the Great Depression era style pantry, um, I had talked to my dad, who was raised through the Great Depression, um, and you can catch that episode number thirty nine. Um, if you didn't catch it previously, um, go to melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button, and that was episode number thirty nine. This is episode number forty, um, and you can also get all of the links to things that I'm referencing to. Um, in the show notes, which is actually a, basically a transcription of the show. So if you want to go back and read anything, you missed anything, or actually get links to recipes or things I'm talking about, all of that is there for you at Um And so, you know, during the Great Depression, it was just really, um, you know, it was a time where people, it was a very hard time where people um, had to make do with very little. And we are so spoiled in today's society, especially those, you know, living in America, um, we don't really know what those hard times are, which I'm grateful that we don't. Um, but we just take so much for granted of what we had. And so what I, I love about, um, having the mindset of being more frugal and from the great depression era, um, is I think that you really start to appreciate what you do have. And I think that there's, um, even in myself, I'm not um, singling myself out. We have an air of ungratitude um, or we kind of think that we're owed things a lot. I I see that um, a lot in society. And, um, and sometimes, you know, I tend to have that attitude as well. But when you don't have very much, um, it really does make you grateful for what you do have. It makes you more appreciative. And I think that we're a lot better off with that mindset. Um, you know, instead of grumbling about things or complaining about things that we don't have or that we don't like, um, if we just take the time to find something to be thankful for. And I think in any situation, if we look hard, we can find something to be thankful for. Um, and so I've been practicing that myself. Um, I've actually been reading the book, um, by Anne. Um, Oh goodness. I'm just going to lose her last name here. Um, Voskamp, um, and she really talks about finding, she did a thousand, um, she made a list of a thousand things that she would find to be thankful for. And then she continued the list on, but she wrote about each day and it can just be little things throughout the day. And so I started doing that. And what has really been, um, I've noticed is when you're, 
looking for things to be thankful for, or if you're having a moment where you're frustrated or upset, once you start to focus on something to be thankful for, it really changes your emotion and your mindset. Um, And I think that that's what happened a lot with the folks who went through the Great Depression is they looked for things to be thankful for. Um, And so, and that of course goes along with my faith, you know, thanking God for the things that he does give us, for the little blessings, those little things in the everyday moments um, that happen. And so I would encourage you to do that. Um, And so I actually called my aunt last night, my dad's sister, um, because I had my dad's memories from the Great Depression era, but I wanted to talk to her. And she's actually um, younger than him. So she wasn't raised during um, the Great Depression years exactly. But Um, she was raised obviously by my grandmother and grandfather who had went through the great depression. And so, um, she said that those years, um, and this is what my dad said as well. Um, they totally shaped the way that my grandmother lived the rest of her life. Um, she never, she never, um, that was always in the back of her mind, um, having gone through that. And so she never threw things away. She always saved things thinking that she might need to use them later. She might not be able to get it later. Um, And so she was always um, saving things. Um, She didn't just throw things away. And I think that that's something that we, a tip that we can do today is to find ways to repurpose things. Um, You know, it's so easy to just toss things and buy something brand new, um, but we really can use um, things in multiple ways and get creative um, and save them. And so I think that that um, is one thing that we definitely want to do. And so one of the um, reader tips um, that I had was that her grandma taught her, and a lot of you probably know this as well, um, but to wash out plastic bags. Now, during the Great Depression era, um, they didn't have plastic bags weren't something that they used, uh, you know, the Ziploc little bags and that kind of a thing. But in today's time, that is definitely something that we can take from the Depression era, and that's washing and reusing things instead of using them once and then throwing them away. Um, of course, if you've eliminated all plastic bags from your household, I think that that's fabulous. Um, but if you haven't, just what you can do is just wash them. And then um, what I do is I, I wash them out and then I turn them inside out to dry so that the inside of the bag gets totally dry and then turn it back right side when I need to use it again. Um, so that's one thing you can do. And then another thing that I do is um, I use parchment paper um, with a lot of my baking because then I don't have to use the grease to grease the pans Um as much. And so that saves a little bit there. But what I do is I reuse the parchment paper. Um, and so I'll, you know, my bread pans, I line them with the parchment paper because I bake all of our own bread. Um, we don't buy bread from the store, which is another uh, Great Depression um, era thing is you, it's all homemade. You don't buy things from the store. And so I will use the parchment paper to first bake um, the bread. And then I reuse those same sheets um, every time that I bake bread until they just... Um, you know, or usually I can get at least two to three uses out of them on doing bread. Um, and then I used actually the parchment paper that I had used to bake bread. Then I did um, a pizza and I needed to preheat my stone in the oven. And so I rolled the actual pizza out on the parchment paper and then transferred that part piece of parchment paper to the heated pizza stone. And then that um, piece of parchment paper got really oily from the cheeses melting. <laughs> and so I couldn't reuse it again. Um, and so that's just one thing is to look at things and see if you can reuse them again. Most of the times we can reuse things more than we really think we can if we have to. Um, 
And so that, you know, reusing things as much as possible is definitely something from the depression era that we should do. And um, when I was talking to my aunt, she said that my grandma, um, you know, she's everything can be made at home instead of purchased at the store. And my grandma was a firm believer that things at home were better for you than the things bought from the store. And now we've kind of came full circle. Um, and we realize that too, that things that made at home are better than the things that are made at store, especially ingredients wise. And it's always, I don't think that I have found anything, honestly, that is cheaper to buy in the store than it is to make at home. I have found it's always cheaper for me to make something at home than it is for me to buy it at the store. Um, and often it's always, usually always healthier because I don't have the preservatives in it. I know the ingredients that are going in. Um, and so of course, making things at home is definitely going to be a way to save money. Um, and it's going to be healthier for you and your family, depending upon the ingredients that you choose. And so um, another thing that my grandma did, and I just love this one, is so they had um, they had their milk cow. And so they had milk. And But when you have, you know, your gallon of milk, um, however much cream that you have on top, that's what you use to make your butter. And so she wouldn't have enough cream each day to make a thing of butter. So she would take the cream and skim that cream off the top of the milk. And then she would put it in a container and store it in the fridge. And she would have to store it in the fridge and just add to it every day until she had enough of the um, cream saved to actually make butter. So she, she had enough quantity. So what happened is um, some it would take a while to build up enough cream to make a thing of butter. And so it would turn sour, which hence we know sour cream, right? And so, but she didn't want sour cream. She actually wanted butter. So what she would do is she would take the soured cream, um, which was totally fine. And, and it's actually a cultured food. Um, if you've heard about cultured food, um, you know, probiotics, fermented foods being really good for your, our digestive systems. Um, this was something that she was doing without the science behind it, but a lot of the things that they did back then were actually really quite good for our health. We're finding out now, um, later. And so she would set it after she got enough cream, um, in the container to make butter. She would set it out on the counter to let it, um, come up to room temperature before she started to churn the butter. And then she would, um, make, use that soured cultured cream and she would turn it into butter. So their butter most of the times was actually, it was cultured butter and it was, um, they would call it, um, it was cultured butter, but it was like sour, soured butter, which is going to kind of sound ick. Um, you think it's sour cream to a lot of you that might not sour cream butter might not really sound appealing. Um, and my aunt was saying it was kind of an acquired taste, but she remembers it quite fondly actually. And so, you know, there's a lot of things, um, like that, you know, she just might, they had to wait until they had enough to make something. And, you know, when you, um, really weren't allowed to be picky. <laughs> you know, you ate the food that you had and you were grateful for it because without it, you would go hungry. And I think that's another lesson that we can take. A lot of the times we like to think of what we want to have for dinner or, you know, what we want to eat. And so when we go shopping, we purchase things based on what we want and not necessarily always based on the cost um, of the ingredients and what, you know, the money that we have are to save money. And so I think that that's another lesson is we really need to, instead of paying attention to what we want, um, pay attention to what we need and what we can actually afford. Um, I think that's a, a big thing um, that we're even working on in our home. 
And so they would have the, um, the cultured butter. And the other thing that my aunt was saying is they didn't really have um, bread very much. Like when they took their, packed their lunches and went to school and stuff, like having a sandwich um, or a loaf of bread wasn't something that they had, but they did what they did instead was they always, they had biscuits um, and cornbread. And so of course, when you're using biscuits and cornbread, then you don't have the yeast. So that was um, a way to avoid, um, you know, an extra ingredient cost because yeast, um, unless you're doing sourdough, which it doesn't sound like my grandma really did sourdough where you um, are capturing your own yeast, um, which is a fantastic thing um, as well. Speaking of cultured um, fermented foods, but so they did a lot of, you know, kind of like the, the more quick breads, the short breads, and that was with making biscuits and doing cornbread. And so they would have um, biscuits in place of their bread a lot for their lunches. Um, and I love biscuits. Um, biscuits are probably one of my favorite things ever, actually. <laughs> um, I just adore biscuits. There's so many things, you know, you just eat them plain. You can put butter on them, of course, with honey. Oh my goodness. Um, and I like biscuits and I don't, my mom used to do this. And so I'm not sure where she got it, but I like biscuits with warm applesauce on top of them. That is one of my favorites. And then, of course, um, jam and jelly. And I even like biscuit sandwiches. Um, taking a biscuit and putting like a cooked egg on it or, um, you know, cheese and a little bit of meat. Gosh, you name it. Uh, you can put it on a biscuit and I'm ready to go. <laughs> so um, I love biscuits. And so that was one of the things, too, that my um, that my grandma did. And then my dad actually talked about this and so did my aunt. And so a lot of times, um, you know, treats because of course of sugar and just having the extra money to make treats and to bake wasn't something that they always um, were able to do. And so my grandma would make something called chocolate gravy. So it was basically like a cooked um, chocolate pudding but she would uh, make that and she would put that over the biscuits. And so that was like a really special treat. Um, my dad remembers that that was like one of their favorite things. They didn't get to have it very often because it, you know, used cocoa, um, which wasn't something that they could grow and raise themselves. But he remembers that really fondly. That was one of his favorite things was um, chocolate gravy. And I don't have her recipe for that. My grandma was one of those old school cooks, um, you know, like they were back then when you cooked everything day in and day out. And so she didn't write her recipes down. She had learned them from her mom. And so she just cooked, um, you know, by sight and, and by feel. And so she didn't have a recipe book that she really, that she really used or that she had recipes written down. She just did them. <laughs> um, and so unfortunately I don't have her recipe for her biscuits or her chocolate gravy. Um, but it was a, a cooked pudding gravy that she would put over the biscuits. And so that was just a really special thing. In fact, I had made it, my dad had talked about it so much that I did make a chocolate gravy, um, a chocolate pudding. And I will try and find a similar recipe. I don't have it up on my blog under my recipes, but I'll see if I can find one for today's show notes for you um, that I used. And I made it for him and surprised him Christmas morning. We always have a family breakfast. And so he hadn't had it since he was a kid, actually. And I, so I made him chocolate gravy for Christmas morning and he really enjoyed that. And so did the kids. Oh my goodness. And it was good. I liked it too. <laughs> it was a really great thing. Okay. So back to our Great Depression tips. Um, so then another thing that, that my grandma did, and I actually do have her recipe because my she wrote it down. She guessed the amounts and wrote it down for my mom. Um, and that's for her cornbread because my dad always talked about my grandma's cornbread. And so my mom wanted to get her recipe. And so I actually do have that written down. 
And I have to tell you now, um, my grandma always said that you only ate white corn. No yellow corn was allowed. Yellow corn was for chickens and livestock, she always said. So I don't necessarily have that (laughs) sentiment, but she did. And so her cornbread was always white. And so um, on her little, the little recipe card here, um, she had down a cup of flour, a cup of cornmeal, a quarter teaspoon soda, and then she has two and a half teaspoons baking powder and a cup of buttermilk. And then it just says, add a little water if too stiff. So there's no, I love it. There's no like oven temperature time <laughs> or time to bake. That was just it because she cooked for the most part until the, the latter years. She cooked on a wood stove. And so, you know, you would build up the fire and you, you just learn by trial and error how much wood and how hot and how long. And so she would just cook them that way. Um, She also used to, um, she would make little pancakes out of it um, and she would fry them in the cast iron skillet. And so that was another way if she didn't want to bake them that she would fry them up that way as well. And so that is her cornbread recipe. And of course, um, and I think this is a Southern thing because my grandparents moved out to the Pacific Northwest from North Carolina, the mountains of North Carolina um, in the early 1940s. And so you did not have cornbread without milk and you poured a glass of milk and then you crumbled up your cornbread and you put your cornbread in your milk and then you could either drink it or eat it with a spoon and to this day my dad cannot have cornbread without putting it in a glass of milk um that's one of his favorite ways to have it and he's still really cornbread and biscuits he would much rather have than bread I think because he was you know raised that way um and so then another tip that I have is um we have a lot of blackberries here they just kind of grow wild. In fact, they're a nuisance. They're actually classified as a noxious weed because they can get so invasive here. Um, but it was a it was a fruit that you could get um, on just kind of all over this area without having to purchase it or really even growing it. Honestly, you didn't really have to cultivate. You don't have to cultivate them. And so, um, blackberry jelly and blackberry syrup is something that could be mean pretty easily. Um, but store bought pectin wasn't something that a lot of folks, especially back then, could afford. And of course, you know, store-bought pectin is fairly new. And so um, my grandma told my mom um, how to make blackberry jelly without store-bought pectin. And what she would always tell my mom is you take um, one or two green apples, depending on the size of the green apples, and you grate that apple up into your um, blackberries as blackberry jelly as they're cooking. And then the apples, you know, they cook down because you've grated them. So um, consistency wise, you're not going to feel them. And you really, you don't taste them in the recipe either. Um, But you grate two green apples into your blackberry jelly and that's what creates the set. So you don't actually add in any pectin. And so a lot of the, you know, that was a a way that they use things that they already readily had um, in order to make things into Canada for the following year. So using a green apple. And of course you can actually cook apples down, um, and make a type of pectin, but back, but if you just have a green apple and grate it, um, it's a lot quicker. And back then, because they didn't have, um, you know, the storage capabilities as far as weren't using, they had freezers, but they didn't use them as much. And so instead of, you know, freezing the fruit to use it later, um, as it came on in, in season as they would preserve it for later. And so the blackberry jelly and stuff would all be made at that time. And they would grate the apples into it. Um, and to can it up. And so that's how my mom always did blackberry jelly um, when I was growing up. And then I also, um, I don't use store-bought pectin a lot either just because one, um, it is an expense 
and I don't always have it on hand. <laughs> and so I have um, created a strawberry jam, blueberry jam, and cherry jam recipe that doesn't use store-bought pectin. Um, I actually, two other sources of natural pectin is in lemon and limes. And so um, my recipes use those for the set as well. And so I will link to those in the show notes. Um, there are other, So you can use those recipes as well um, to make jams and jellies without store-bought pectin. And then um, another thing that um, was really fun. I was when I was talking to my aunt and she said that my grandpa would do this is they had a wood stove. And so their wood stove they used to cook on and to heat their home. And so, and they, uh, you know, back then, I'm actually not sure when the first dehydrators like we have out now came out to be honest. Um, but back then, sure they didn't, they didn't have them. And so they had to dry if they wanted to dehydrate things or dry things to preserve it to use later in the winter months, then they needed to do so um, using either the sun or another heat source. And the wood stove, because it's a dry heat, is an excellent way to dehydrate things. And so my grandpa, he actually made, um, he used a a screen um, in a frame and he put hooks up in the to hang it from above the wood stove. And so they could put food. And so he would do um, prunes a lot and take prunes and he would put them on a screen and then he had these hooks and he would hang that screen above the wood stove. And then the wood stove acted as the dehydrator and it would dry the prunes. And so that was how they dried their fruits and anything like that, that they wanted to put up to use um, for the winter months and for the following months. And so another thing that you can do, um, and my aunt's actually was doing this last night when we were on the phone, I interrupted her, (laughs) um, which was sweet of her to take the time, but she, um, you know, corn is something, especially where I live, I think more people can grow corn and do grow corn than they do wheat. And I think that's why, um, cornmeal and different corn things like that were really, um, something that my grandma used a lot, you know, their cornbread in the South, um, because you could, dry and grind your own corn up into cornmeal easier than you could flour. So you could buy your flour, but you could use the cornmeal to really stretch that out. Um, and so my grandma always, you can take the corn and, um, take it off of the cob. And usually you just kind of go through in the best ears of corn, you know, you're going to use to eat corn on the cob or to cook with right then and there, but they would take the corn that might not be, um, you know, it could be overripe and just not in the best of shape. And then you're going to, um, take the kernels off of the cob and then you're going to spread those out and dry them and so then you have dried corn and once that those that corn is fully dried then you grind that up into your cornmeal and so that was another way that they could um you know take and then plus corn is a livestock um food can be fed to livestock and they always had um you know chickens and cows and and different things pigs so that would be something if you had a huge bumper crop of corn not only could it feed you and your family, but it could also feed your livestock. Um, so that was another thing, you know, during the depression era that they did. And like I said, the cornmeal, you can mix with flour to really stretch a lot of different things that you're making. You know, if you're doing um, tortillas and just different things like that, you can use the cornmeal in place of some of the flour. So that was um, a tip that they had. And then this one was um, fun. My grandma or my aunt said that a lot of the times for a pie crust um, and I will link to, um, actually it's my other grandma, my mother's side, my great grandma's pie crust recipe, um, which is fabulous. It is like one of the flakiest, best pie crusts ever. (laughs) It is so good. Um, and so I will link to that recipe in the show notes and 
So she would take a pie crust and she would cut it out into small little circles. And then whatever she had, different kinds of fruits or even applesauce, she would put that in the center of the pie, the little circle of pie crust. And then she would put another circle on top and use a fork to crimp and pinch the edges. Um, And then she would fry that on top of the stove. And so it was a fried um, pasty. And you can... um, put um, my aunt was telling me where she's at right now in Wisconsin um, that there they do a lot of vegetable and meat pasties as something from that um, that location but my grandma just did fruits and so that was a way if she had just a little bit of fruit maybe not enough to make a full-on pie um, but she could make little individual servings and so that was another treat that they did and so I can't wait to try that one Um, I have 75 pounds of apples coming um, tomorrow actually (laughs) And so I'm going to be busy doing applesauce up, um, dehydrating the apples, um, canning apple pie filling. I always can up my apple pie filling to use later on in the year um, because it's just so quick and I can have a homemade pie ready um, in no time when it's just opening up a jar of the apple pie filling. So I will link to that as well. Um, and then it was interesting too, my aunt and I were talking, um, you know, and I would encourage you Two, this has really helped me feel more connected to my family, learning these things, even though my grandparents are gone. So if you, um, you know, have family members that, um, you know, that are alive and, and went through and remember these things, I would just encourage you to reach out to them and ask them questions. Um, you know, if you have to do it by email or it's even, but it's so nice to talk to someone and hear their voice. So if you could give them a call, but I would encourage you to write down your family's history and heritage and their tips and their recipes. You know, before, like I said, I don't have some of these recipes from my grandma that I wish that I did. I wish that, you know, someone had asked her or had gotten written down. So don't let that happen to you. You know, if your grandparents are still alive, or your great grandparents, you know, ask them for some of their recipes, ask them if they'll write them down, if it's things that they just do by memory, um, so that you have them and can pass them down. But one of the things that my aunt and I were talking about is, um, she said that, you know, even after the depression was over when she was growing up and even when they did have, uh, you know, some extra money and that kind of a thing that she was still in the mindset that you didn't, you didn't get things. You didn't splurge on things. Um, and so my grandpa had went to the store and bought, brought, bought and brought her home, um, a hand mixer, a hand beater. And he brought it to her and she made him take it back to the store. She said, I don't need that. I can do without that. And I think that that is such a great, um, mindset because, too much, like I mentioned, you know, earlier, too much of the stuff that we have, it's, it's more that we want it. It's not that we need it. And I found that even, um, with myself, in fact, um, what I've kind of started doing is sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll click through and I do order stuff online, um, through Amazon and different places like that, just cause we are pretty rural and I can't always get into town to get things. Um, and it's just, so I will order things, but what I've started doing, um, is I will, put it in the cart, but then I won't actually check out because a lot of it is like an, um, is like an impulse thing. And so I'm working on that, um, as being more frugal. And I tell you what, usually if you come back to it 24 hours later, you're like, I don't really need that. And then I don't end up ordering it. So I've been trying to make myself, um, you know, unless it's something that I really do absolutely need, not just want, um, really evaluating, like, do you know, do I really need this? Do the kids really need this? Whatever. And a lot of times it's no, we really don't. Um, and so that's been things, you know, um, and from the 
Great Depression tips is, you know, using things until they're totally worn out. Um, A lot of times, you know, with clothing and stuff, we don't really wear them until they're worn out. We wear them until we don't want them anymore. We're tired of them. We don't think they're fashionable anymore. But rarely do we wear them until they're totally worn out. In fact, I just wore out, honestly, the very first pair of pants, totally. Um, They were a pair of white um, summer pants, capris that I purchased 10 years ago, you guys. (laughs) before my kids, before I had kids. And I would, I have wore them. And then I actually was wearing them the other day and the fabric had worn so thin that they split and tore to where they could not be repaired. (laughs) And so I finally, you know, I got, I, I finally, they were retired from my wardrobe. But honestly, that was the first time that I had actually worn a pair of pants to the point that I had totally actually worn them out and they lasted 10 years. Um, and so one, that was a great pair of pants. They were very long longevity wise. Um, I think I got them, uh, like I said, it was 10 years ago. I think I actually got them from Sears um, 10 years ago. But that's one of the things, you know, is using things until the life of them is gone. And then you could have taken some of the scraps of that fabric actually, you know, and used them for rags or different things like that. You know, just because it was wore out as a pair of pants doesn't mean that didn't have a use in another fashion of some sort. And so I think that that's, you know, another great thing about the depression era that we need to use today is really using things up fully and then finding another way to use them again, instead of going out and purchasing new things. Um, you know, and of course, buying used. Buying used is a great way. Um, and that was something I was actually talking about. Anne, and she was saying, you know, after the depression and stuff that they would go to the Goodwill and the different thrift stores. And that's where they purchased their clothes. They didn't go and purchase them new. And so that's another um, tip as well. So thank you so much for joining me today. I would love to hear any tips that you have Um, in regards to, you know, the Great Depression era type mindset and frugality, or if there's things that you would like to learn more about, I would love to hear that as well. So we can cover that in the next show. So thanks so much for listening with me today. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Pioneering Today. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes and make sure to head over to melissaknorris.com to subscribe for free modern homesteading updates to help you live the simple life.